Good morning, everybody, and um, welcome to another SACPA session. Um, during this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day. And in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight and the Lethbridge Herald. Today, we're very pleased to have with us Dr. John von Heinking. Um, and he's talking about what happened last week at um, uh, the rioter storm in the United States Capitol on January 6, 2021. Uh, Dr. John from Hiking has been at the University of Lethbridge since 2000. He has a PhD in political science from the University of Notre Dame and an MA and a BA in political science from the University of Calgary. John specializes in political theory. He's an author of numerous books and co-edited numerous volumes. John, thank you so much for joining us today and we look forward to your talk. Thank you, Annalise, for the kind invitation and also the kind um, introduction. Okay. German philosopher Hegel famously declared that the owl of Minerva flies only at night. I suppose that an organization dedicated to current affairs only invites a political theorist to come speak when things look bleak in a regime such as the Madisonian Constitution of the United States appears to have run its course. I'll let you be the judge whether this is wisdom or the sending in of the professorial clown. The public theater of the lunatics who stormed the Capitol building on January 6th brings to mind a scene from uh, the Code of the Woosters, as in Jeeves and Wooster, by the author P.G. Woodhouse, perhaps the greatest comic writer of the 20th century, uh, and also a member of Winston Churchill's famous other club. In that book, Roderick Spode, the character modeled on the fascist Oswald Mosley, organizes a street rally of the Black Shorts, whose aesthetic sense fetishizes the knees of the British male. Bernie Wooster, the eponymous hero of our books, teases Spode's soccer shorts. Spode thinks of himself as the voice of the people, but Bertie points out to him that instead of the voice of the people, it says, look at that frightful ass, Spode, swanking in his footer bags. Did you ever in your puff see such a perfect perisher? What I think Bert, Bertie Wooster teaches us in this moment is that such movements in the end reveal themselves in their menacing finality. Those of you who have seen the Hamilton musical will recall James Madison and Thomas Jefferson opposed Alexander Hamilton's plans to strengthen the power of the national government by establishing a na national banking system. The U.S. Constitution to this day remains essentially Madisonian because its checks and balances system limits political power by granting just enough for government to do its job, but also by diffusing power across a system of interlocking and, in and competing branches executive, legislative, judicial, as well as the national versus state governments. Its other important feature is that it blends different principles, including merit and egalitarianism, according to which, or according to and even within different branches that form its system of representative government. Even so, this constitution is, as Abraham Lincoln famously stated at Gettysburg, government of the people, by the people, for the people. This system has endured, but its foundations have been chipped away for reasons I wish to explain. A major reason is that many Americans have allowed the very success of the Madisonian Constitution and its institutional checks and balances 
to lull them into thinking that they do not need to attend to the moral character of their leaders and themselves. They seem to have been hoodwinked by Immanuel Kant's progressive dream that perfect laws can still, quote, maintain order in a nation of devils, thereby allowing many in their midst to become demonic. One of the character flaws frequently cited of Donald Trump is that he lacks a sense of responsibility. It is noteworthy that James Madison himself was one of the first to use this very term, by which he meant a mixture of obligation and responsiveness. Uval Levin indicates responsibility is a virtue of a leader and citizen when he writes, quote, the responsible leader takes ownership of his actions and duties and takes it upon himself to act in response to events. The responsible citizen understands that the republic is at some level his to maintain through both action and restraint. Madison and his colleagues designed their constitution as a bulwark against demagogues just like Trump, but they also recognized that bulwarks can be destroyed and that a liberal democracy, perhaps more than any other kind of regime, depends ultimately on the good moral character of its leaders and citizens. The Madisonian regime and its system of checks and balances therefore attempts to strike a Goldilocks balance between not relying too much on the virtue of leaders and citizens and needing just enough virtue in terms of responsibility in order to keep factionalism in check. I shall outline some of the ways that this Goldilocks balance of the Madisonian constitution has become unbalanced, not only by leaders and citizens acting irresponsibly, but also by those who do not think they need to be responsible. The strength of the laws lulled people for the past number of years at high levels to think that they could push the envelope legally and ethically so that the code of, if it's not illegal, then it's acceptable, became widespread throughout leading institutions of society. Taking place within a democratic culture that increasingly celebrates antinomianism by treating taboos and norms as arbitrary infringements on individual expression and ambition, that pushing of envelopes creates a cycle of one-upmanship where exaggerated and misleading rhetoric swell to outright lying and peddling of conspiracy theories, thereby begetting a sense of victimhood that treats every act of government that one dislikes as a plot of a hidden cabal be it the CIA, the military hiding the UFOs, George Soros, Bilderberg, or Deep State. The truth is not so much out there, as the X-Files TV show of the 1990s said. Instead, truth becomes one's own truth, and politics becomes post-truth, where the demagogue, can whip up, the demagogue who can whip up the biggest spin and Twitter mob defines the narrative. We are now treading in the Thomas Hobbes's state of nature with its seditious roaring of a troubled nation, or if you like, the lower regions of Dante's Inferno, where the most serious sins are the result not just of moral, but of an intellectual corruption, whereby souls are destroyed by their own lies. So much for Kant's optimism for strong laws for a nation of devils. French philosopher René Girard provides a useful lens for understanding political conflict as what he calls a cycle of mimetic rivalry. The concept is quite simple. I envy your wealth and status and mimic you in order to get the better of you. You respond by mimicking and one-upping me. The result is that we trap ourselves into a cycle of one-upmanship 
where each side tries to get the better of the other, while also mimicking one another. It is for this reason that Antifa and QAnon supporters don't like it when commentators describe them as two sides of the same coin. Mimic rivalry has only been accelerated by social media, but in a paradoxical way. It both fuels the mimetic rivalry, but depersonalizes it because we aren't actually present when we see it. We mob, we move on, and the internet keeps a permanent record of the lies we use to cancel each other. Social media also makes mimetic, mimetic rivalry national and global rather than local, so that the miasma spreads globally. The immediate cause of the January 6th riots is Donald Trump's post-election campaigning that cast doubt on the legitimacy of the election results and the anger that whipped up. His lack of legal arguments indicates that this was his strategy all along. In doing so, Trump seems to have understood his own strategy of one-upping the not-my-president rhetoric that, along with the Russian collusion narrative, cast doubt on the legitimacy of his 2016 win. Indeed, 57% of Democrats were ready to consider the election stolen if Biden had not won. Trump's tit-for-tat strategy finds a ready audience in U.S. politics already trapped in the cycle of mimetic rivalry with its rhetoric that frequently includes accusations of hypocrisy, double standards, whataboutism, or the other side started it. If Hillary Clinton's team could get away with concocting the Steele dossier and not my president, then Trump thought he could reveal the latent hypocrisy of deep state by casting doubts on the legitimacy of Biden, who of course is the consummate Washington insider. That Biden was the Democratic nominee, I think, is also significant. It's part of the mythology of many Republicans that Washington politics took a sharp turn for the worse during the 1988 Senate confirmation hearings of Judge Robert Bork. Forty years later, Americans expect these nomination hearings to be dirty slugfests, as happened in the Kavanaugh hearings more recently. But the Bork hearing was the first time this really happened. To be borked is now become a verb in American political parlance. Well, I guess, well, guess who was the Senate Judiciary Committee chairperson who oversaw and led the borking? That's right, Joe Biden. Hmm. So for Trump, Casting doubt on Biden's victories, payback for not my president and the Russia collusion narrative, and for many Republicans, I'm sure it was payback for Bork. I emphasize that these are self-justifying narratives that form the factional conflict of contemporary U.S. politics. The Democrats have their own narratives concerning how they view how Republicans took first blood, whether it's the Willie Brown advertisements in the 1988 election or systemic racism that many see in the founding and thus the very DNA of the American regime. The New York Times 1619 project, which even its authors claim is not about historical accuracy, but rather is about the narrative of the future. That's one example of that. I also suggest that trying to find a starting point for corruption in a nation's history, an original sin as it were, is fruitless and indeed an is itself an instance of this mimetic rivalry. As St. Augustine, who wrote a lot about original sin, noted in the 5th century, when he was responding to accusations by Roman aristocrats that Christianity corrupted Rome, Augustine points out even the great Roman historian Sallust himself thought that Rome was always corrupt. The cycle of mimetic rivalry leads sides to equate politics with war, 
of helping friends and harming enemies. Since 2016, I frequently regarded U.S. politics as what the ancient Greeks called aclocracy, rule by the cheering mob. Each side of the demos cheers on its favorite oligarch, much like rabbit sports fans, fanatics, cheer on their favorite star players, except instead of a hockey arena, they play in social media. Leaders manipulate their followers who respond by cheering for their leader to destroy the other side. Only total victory will satisfy that lust, which social media does nothing but provoke. And each side is convinced that the other side will set up a tyranny and destroy the other side. A big danger the U.S. faces at this moment is that with words untethered from reality, the members of the incoming administration will clamp down on any dissent that they might necessarily define as violent. There are already calls to place Ted Cruz, the senator, and Josh Hawley on a no-fly list. Is a social credit system like they have in China next, all in the name of public security? In an aclocracy beset by illusions and secondary realities, how is the classical liberal distinction between harmful and not harmful speech to be determined? The wish for total victory helps explain the apocalyptic rhetoric surrounding U.S. elections, but it serves as a reminder that this political crisis is also a spiritual crisis. It seems that many rioters were inspired by QAnon, which has become a kind of millenarian movement. Its adherents find a sense of belonging and meaning in the sense of expectation that comes from QAnon's cryptic prophecies known as Q-drops that tantalizingly promise a Gnostic saving wisdom that will, will, will reveal hidden secrets and bring about national transformation under Trump's leadership. A large number of evangelicals follow QAnon because they see in it a family resemblance of their own tradition of apocalyptic expectations, while slogans of QAnon of do your own research, don't take anything for granted, offer this movement a patina of becoming of being empirical science. The combination of revealing hidden truths and the patina of science is characteristic of a form of a long tradition of ideological thinking that goes back to Marx, which is kind of ironic. Worth noting, though, is that the most famous of the January 6th mob was a fellow by the name of Jacob Angeli Chansley, the shirtless QAnon shaman with the furry Viking hat. He states that he grew up Catholic, but, quote, but I was smart enough even as a kid to realize that it was a bunch of bull. Even as a child, he wanted to understand why the world was so messed up. It has been observed of, on the other side of woke, woke identity politics uh, that, like Chansley, did not simply renounce his old-time religion and become secular, but rather he rechanneled religious passions into politics. Instead of praying for perseverance in the face of what Paul the Apostle calls the mystery of iniqu iniquity, Chansley and his comrades used violence as a sanctifying device to right the, the wrongs they see. He aspires to be like Nietzsche's Ubermensch, who creates reality, and much in our media and technologically saturated culture induces leaders and citizens to delude themselves into thinking that reality is infinitely pliable and subject to one's own will. Politics is then seen as the, as the place of solving cosmic and theological questions. Instead of religion intruding into politics, we now have political religions. Like his doppelganger in identity politics, Chansley, in this purportedly Christian, post-Christian era, rejects original sin that we all share and reverts the great Russian writer and dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn's repudiation 
of communism by now viewing that the line between good and evil that Solzhenitsyn says cuts through every heart now cuts through those who are spiritually pure and those who are spiritually stained. By aspiring to be Nietzsche's uber-mentioned, these activists have shown themselves to be little more than Manichaeans in goofy costumes, asking mummy to bring them organic food while they sit in jail. In aspiring to be postmodern gods, they have become beasts. So how did we get here? How did this mimetic cycle of rivalry get so bad? One can identify numerous recent political crises that have contributed to the corrosion of civic friendship in the U.S. and distrust in institutions. These include the Iraq War, the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and subsequent re recession, the loss of millions of manufacturing and blue-collar jobs, and of course, most recently, COVID. However, I want to focus on another one, the loneliness crisis. Over the last generation, Americans have expressed all-time high levels of loneliness and friendlessness, and this has corroded civic friendship. This is associated, too, with the hollowing out of civil society institutions, that layer of associations between individuals and the state, and that give people a sense of self-agency and togetherness. Civil society is also a bulwark that supports limited government. Political scientists have long understood that tyrants divide and conquer their populations and to make them lonely. They have also understood that the sense of not having a stake in the political system breeds irresponsibility, which leads to revolutionary movements. Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam's 2001 book, Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community, documents the decline of the tradition, American tradition of joining together that has characterized much of his history. So he uses the example of bowling leagues kind of um, falling apart, not being so popular as, as kind of a central image to describe that hollowing out of civil associations. One of the many political consequences of loneliness is hyperpartisanship, which is the result of what political scientists call social sorting. My claim seems counterintuitive because we tend to blame parties for hyperpartisanship on the assumption that unity and civic friendship will suddenly appear if we only get rid of parties. But the dream of disappearing parties is the same populist delusion that Trumpism feeds upon. Both assume that blessings will accrue if people can be free of corrupt elites. Hyperpartisanship, though, reflects the weakness of parties. Normally, parties are coalitions of ideologies and interests that compete for power. They succeed in as much as they can draw the largest number of people to support them. And this requires numerous strategies, including above all, negotiation between competing views and interests. Instead of being sources of extremism, properly functioning parties are moderating influences because they incentivize cooperation and pragmatism while also filtering out potential leaders. But properly functioning parties need a healthy civil society in which to operate and depend on a citizenry who themselves also have habits of moderation, cooperation, and negotiation. When people bowl alone, to use Putnam's phrase, it means their political skills at cooperation and negotiation and simply getting along with other people are stunted and atrophied. Loneliness breeds not just poor health, but also poor moral health, including irresponsibility, the opposite of what the Madisonian Constitution requires. Putnam blamed the much of the decline on television, but now social media makes things a lot worse, I think. 
Today's parties have become little more than franchises, shell organizations that provide political entrepreneurs and now demagogues a platform to appeal to socially sorted and lonely crowd with no incentive to negotiate, be moderate, or be responsible. I will note, too, that Manhattan, home to America's business, journalist, and entertainment elite, is the most socially sorted district in the country. The other major crisis runs deeper than the political crisis. It is what I refer to as a regime crisis, and one that plagues all liberal democracies to varying degrees, and that includes Canada. Trump is a reminder that we must be careful what we ask for. In particular, Trump is the product of the progressive dream for a more egalitarian politics. American progressives since Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson back in the 19-teens have wanted more effective executive power and more democracy than James Madison and, and his friends provided for in the Constitution. Wilson criticized the Madisonian separation of powers because it provided too many obstacles to the presidency. He wished for a more parliamentary fusion of powers where, as, the, as in the Canadian system, legislators depend upon the political executive. He had in mind party discipline. With both Republicans and Democrats adopting primaries in the late 1960s and 70s to choose their leaders, progressives found their means of promoting Wilson's desire for a strong executive. As political scientist James Caesar demonstrated way back in 1979 in a book called Presidential Selection, primaries were egalitarian devices to promote more democratic means of selecting presidential candidates. Progressives hated the so-called smoke-filled back rooms because they were seen to be anti-democratic. Better to have primaries where the general party membership, now including anyone who shows up at the door and pays the minimal membership fee, chooses the leader. Caesar warned that the primaries would hollow out parties as filters of candidates and as institutions that broker differences. He warned that primaries would make parties vulnerable to populists whose authority would be a personality cult. This explains Trump. It also explains the behavior of some many Republican members of Congress, like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, whose power base is no longer independent of the president, as the Madisonian Constitution would provide for, but is linked to Trump's personality cult. It also explains the impotence of Congress for the past couple of decades to advance and enact its own legislative agenda. It is notable that the federal institution that Americans have trusted the least over the last 20 years is Congress. Faced with a fickle and impotent Congress, presidents such as Trump and Obama before him have acted primarily through executive decrees, Obama's famous pen and phone. Obama's pen and phone exhibit executive power that makes an end run, end run around the Madisonian check Madisonian system of checks and balances, especially Congress. In 2016, Trump campaigned against the so-called deep state, which refers to what political scientists call the administrative state or the, or the bureaucracy. The problem, as I see it, is that the hollowing out of the Madisonian Constitution has led to a point where, with Congress largely paralyzed in its legislative capacity, governing now takes place within the executive the pen and the phone, which explains why everyone focuses so much on presidential elections. Within the executive, the administrative state is supposed to obey the president's orders. 
Under Trump, many members of the administrative state viewed themselves as checks, as the most important checks on the president himself, with many simply not implementing his orders. The most famous of these was Department of Homeland Security official Miles Taylor, who published the anonymous New York Times editorial in 2018. However, the issue goes beyond simply resisting Trump. The problem with the administrative state is that it makes its own claims to govern according to technical efficiency, which checks not just Trump, but the people. But this claim made by the administrative state conflicts with Lincoln's government of the people, by the people, for the people. Those of you who are old enough to recall the 1980s British sitcom Yes Minister will recognize what I mean. That show portrayed Sir Humphrey Appleby, whose amoral Machiavellian council ruled over the cabinet minister, Jim Hacker. He later became prime minister. While Yes Minister was a brilliant show, it expressed a twofold problem of democratic governance that Trump manifests and also exploits. First, by providing amoral expertise rather than wisdom coupled with moral virtue, the administrative state's claim of serving the public good is questionable. Bureaucrats have their own interests, which can be at odds with voters. Second, the power of the administrative state hinders democratic self-government. But the problem is thorny because democratic government is messy and, as COVID has shown us, there is demand in the political marketplace for rule by experts. Alexis de Tocqueville, who wrote perhaps the best book on democracy way back in the 1830s, I'm referring to as Democracy in America, he knew lots of French aristocrats and also officials in positions first established by Louis XIV. But he, de- he defended democratic self-government by pointing out that, yes, democracy produces a lot of mediocre politicians and leaders, but it has the advantage of distributing political experience and thus expertise across a wider cross-section of society than other types of regimes. This gives citizens incentive to have a stake in the system and therefore produces stability and general political intelligence. In other words, the Madisonian constitution, which Tocqueville admired, both depends on but also produces political intelligence in the populace. Tocqueville emphasized the importance of the most humble of its democratic forms, including municipal politics, jury duty, the many civil associations, service organizations, including churches, clubs, unions, and others. When people are encouraged by their Madisonian constitution to come together face-to-face to cooperate, resolve differences, and solve common problems, that is, to be responsible to one another, they are more likely than the selfie-taking social media stars or QAnon shamans to develop respect and practice civility with one another. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Perhaps they might even become friends with someone on the other side. Tocqueville beautifully summarizes this education in his famous claim about the moral development that occurs in democratic participation. He writes, Feelings and ideas are, are renewed, the heart enlarged, and the understanding develops only by the reciprocal action of human beings upon one another. So in other words, face-to-face encounters kind of oblige us to be responsible to ourselves and to others. We can't get away with, you know, flaming somebody, as they say on social media. The crises of American politics that, in a sense, culminated in the events of January 6 are the result of a process that Tocqueville warned about 180 years ago. 
This process has hollowed out intermediate public institutions and unsurprisingly has harmed people's capacity for relating to one another, both as responsible citizens and in personal terms. My own scholarly work on the politics of friendship is in part inspired by this crisis. If January 6th teaches us anything, it should teach us that the problem and its solution are not restricted to the United States. Its roots lie in all of us as modern democratic human beings living in a technological age with social medias and other factors corroding intermediary institutions and democratic forms. Let us not mimic American partisans and assume the problem is all on the other side. Permit me, though, to conclude on a positive note. The challenge for Americans is to dial down the temperature and at least to mitigate the Girardian cycle of mimetic rivalry. And if we have time, I've, made, I've got a few notes of ways that they, might, they could do that. Anyway, the coming days will see whether calls to impeach, censure, indict Trump can do that. But perhaps the solution that might best heal divisions in the U.S. is right in front of them, the election results. If the election was about Donald Trump, then Trump not only lost the presidency, but also both houses of Congress. Trump himself defines goodness with winning. And on his one and only moral standard, he is a loser. Trump by Trump. So, as James Madison might say to Donald Trump, you're fired. Thank you so much for fabulous talk. Um, um, we have um, some questions in the queue, so I'll just get started right away, if that's okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, Knut Peterson asks, thanks very much for stepping in on, on short notice to address this timely topic. Um, can you please further explain Trump's preoccupation with fake news and generally discrediting media? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, media, the U.S. media landscape is fairly easy to discredit. They themselves, I mean, if you just look within the media ecosystem, the media themselves are in a cycle of one-upmanship, um, which kind of promotes a kind of escalation of, you know, getting the scoop. Um, of course, in the media, if it bleeds, it reads. Uh, that's the print version. The, the, the social media version is clickbait. So the more spectacular the, the, the story, uh, the more clicks. And I mean, I've talked to journalists here in Canada who express frustration over this, that you know, journalists get uh, you know, advancement in their careers by the number of clicks that go on their stories. So you know, writing some boring story about you know, the dog catcher is not as interesting as Donald Trump. And of course, Donald Trump, I mean, and also with, 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 with different media organizations, I mean, a lot of them are losing tons of money, right? A lot of them, a lot of them, the sort of mainstream me media outlets are uh, having economic trouble. And Trump is a, a gift to them, frankly. I mean, they, they, they're, on a, they're in a codependent relationship in many ways. So Trump is the best thing that ever happened to Fox, not just Fox, but MSNBC, CNN, New York Times, all these, all these outlets. So they, they kind of feed each other. It's this kind of mimetic cycle of rivalry that I, that I mentioned. Okay. Um, I'm going to use my moderator powers and ask a question, <laughs> ask a question of you. Um, you mentioned um, that one of the things 
to 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 get involved as a way of sort of you know alleviating yeah. this problem. Um, and what we see in Alberta, for example, um, is that we see these committees. Uh, to study the new uh, the curriculum, for example, the education curriculum. But yet these committees are handpicked. They're not. Yeah. We can't actually, um, you know, apply to be on a committee like that. They're handpicked. Yeah. So yeah. how do you suggest that process of getting more involved when a lot of times when we do want to get involved politically, we actually can't. Yeah, no, that's that, that's that's a that's a uh, that's a tough question to answer. I mean, just on the public education, uh, that, that that example is particular pertinent because part of the public education system is that uh, parents sort of need to kind of have a hand in the system, but public education also has an administration, a bureaucracy. There's political interests. Um, just as kind of a, a general point. Um, I mean, there's political participation, but there's also kind of non-political participation. So um, volunteering for charities. I mean, one of the things I think Canadians can be really, really proud of, actually, over the last five years or more now, is the the role that civil associations and especially churches have played in um, um, settling the Syrian refugees. And Mm -hmm. that, that played a big role here in Lethbridge, too. And that's fairly unique, actually, finding sponsors in civil associations and those the, the civil associations themselves doing a lot of the, the, the groundwork uh, to help these these families settle. And I, and I think that that's a that's that's just one example. But I think it's a fairly significant one. Um, so, I mean, whenever my, my example I used a few years ago and I was actually teaching Tocqueville and this was after the 2013 floods. And one of my students, you know, rereading this heavy-duty political philosophy, and they said, "Well, other than reading heavy-duty political philosophy, you know, how can we kind of become better citizens?" And, and I said, "You got to be like the Hutterites, who who went out and made hundreds and hundreds of sandwiches for the people who lost their homes in the floods. Mm-hmm. They were helping their neighbors. Be a good neighbor. So mm-hmm. we don't need we don't need the state right away, at least, to help out with that." Um, I mean, the political stuff has lots of sort of structural issues, um, but just in terms of society, there's 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 lots. And and of course, I mean, what a lot of um, volunteer groups are are worried about with COVID is you know, as we're on we're online, it's hard to do charity work and do volunteer work when when you're online. It's very challenging, and society suffers. Thank you. Um, our next question comes from Leona Jacobs. You seem to equate anti dash FA, and then in brackets, general anti-fascism, with QAnon, yet anti-FA only became a word in the 2020-ish with Trump. Is there an actual organization or central thought body called anti-FA? Yeah, I think it's probably, I mean, QAnon is, um, it's it's hard to say that it's more formalized, but you can identify it um, by uh, as a kind of a source. I mean, people are a little bit sure. QAnon is supposed to be a single person. Maybe it's several people. Some people think it's Trump. Um, it is a, a, a kind of movement that takes place in the so-called dark web. You know, originally on 4chan, now 8chan. I'm not totally, you know, I'm not totally up on these sorts of things. Uh, Antifa doesn't seems to be a little bit more of a kind of like political parties, as I said, it tends to be more like a shell organization or, or, or a franchise, a kind of label um, that 
people both use and then people both kind of slap on others um, to um, kind of designate a, a kind of left-leaning um, kind of street uh, protest and many times leads to violence. And of course, you, you know, think of the, the, the riots, especially in places like Portland and Seattle. Um, our next question comes from Terry Shillington. Can you say more about what you mean by Madisonian constitution? Well, the United States have a, has a constitution, divides power into several different branches, um, presidency and Congress. Congress itself is divided into an upper house and a lower house, um, a judiciary. Uh, is a third branch. And then there's also federalism. So the national government does some things and the state governments do others. And power is diffused across these different branches. So as and the idea is that no single branch is allowed or it's prevented from accumulating too much power. So as soon as, say, uh, the president starts overreaching, then there are mechanisms that the Congress has to um, limit the president. And of course, Nancy Pelosi and, and the Democrats just filed, uh, the, the, just impeached Trump a second time in the House. So that is one example. That's kind of a, a big example, uh, but they're smaller examples. Uh, and of course, the Supreme Court can place a check on actually both houses and, and so forth. So it's this kind of interlocking network of institutional checks and balances. One of the things in my talk that I tried to emphasize, though, is that it's not just a mechanical, um, it's not just a machine. So it's not like individuals um, can just plug themselves into the machine and they don't have to you know, take responsibility for their own actions or anything. They very do have to do that. Um, but what the Madisonian Constitution, one of its advantages is that it doesn't it assumes that most politicians are going to be jerks, that they're going to be largely ambitious. They're not going to be, um, you know, moral sages by any means. If you rely on moral sages to run your politics, then it's not going to last too long. Um, so you got to assume that your, most politicians will be ambitious and self-interest. And so what the Madisonian Constitution tries to do is try to take advantage of those very ambitions by kind of setting them against one another so that the ambition of Nancy Pelosi and of course she's a very ambitious politician um, counteracts or is supposed to counteract the ambition of a Donald Trump or a Joe Biden or a Ted Cruz and, and all that but at the same time norms can be undermined norms can be um, trust can be destroyed and so you can't go too far in ignoring character and for Madison, kind of the, one of the central defining uh, features, or one of the central uh, moral characters for this system, he calls it responsibility. Okay. Um, our next question comes from uh, Remo Brazzolotto. What effects has the neoliberal agenda in both parties? Sorry, I'll start it again. What effects? has the neoliberal agenda in both parties had on the Madisonian constitution? Yeah, well, I, I think, I mean, what, what um, our, our, our question asker is asking is, how have people in elite institutions kind of um, been able to get away with stuff? 
Um, and it's, you know, it's hard to pin your, put, put your finger on any single cause. At the start of my talk, I tried to suggest that um, in, in some ways what's playing out is kind of a tragedy of a regime of laws. I mean, we, we political scientists like to say that countries like Canada, countries like the United States, Britain, Germany, and so forth, the ones that have these constitutions, they're, they're, they're a regime of laws, not of human beings, so that everybody, president, prime minister, everybody um, is subject to prosecution if they you know, break the law. So nobody's above the law. But, you know, it's, it's harder to, to um, you know, I, I think one of the things that Trump, Trumpian populism has um, um, sort of fed on is the sense that a lot of the people in elite institutions, mostly government, but of course also business, journalism, universities, all the kind of elite institutions of the country um, are kind of get away with it. There's one set of rules for the, for the little people and there's one set of rules for the big people. Um, and enough is enough. Interesting. Um, our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Like Hitler, it appears that Trump has been able to attract a following who will do violence on his behalf. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on the parallels between Hitler and Trump? I think it's largely a personality cult. I mean, there is a kind of... I, mean, I remember during the campaign, Trump had, um, uh, you know, he had, he had these rallies and they're kind of strange. I mean, they the music that they played, I mean, he used to play uh, the Village People and <laughs> Elton John and, and kind of these, these schmaltzy pop songs. And, and a lot of these parties would, or sorry, a lot of these rallies for Trump would end up being kind of, they'd be kind of a festive atmosphere. They're very, you know, it's, I can't say all of them, but there, there's kind of a party atmosphere for, for a lot of them. And one of the things that, that I, I got from, from reading about them, of course, I never attended any, um, but reading about them is that they're kind of get-togethers of people looking for friends. Mm. So, hey, you're a Trump supporter. I'm a Trump supporter. You know, let's be friends. Right. Which is kind of a strange. So so it gets kind of personalized and it gets there's a kind of intimacy about it, which I think kind of is is a little bit too cult like um, for, a, you know, what what is maybe advisable in a Madisonian constitution. Um, I mean, Madison doesn't despise friendship by any means. Um, but at the same time, one of the things that Trump's the, the Trump followers seem to exhibit that you know, you could argue it was something that in, uh, in, in, a, in a kind of um, more extreme way that Hitler exhibited was a kind of almost erotic attachment and devotion, blind devotion to the leader. So that's kind of what cults, cults of personality are about. And I think the, the kind of immediacy um, that uh, social media gives also promotes that. Um, I mean, one of the things I, I touched on in my talk was with, with the QAnon, um, what it seems to promote is a kind of in-group, you know, now you're part of the secret. And, that, and, and by being part of the secret, um, you're, you're, you're one of us. And that's kind of cult-like cult too. Our next question comes from uh, Timothy at the Leftbridge Herald. Do you agree with the impeachment of Donald Trump this week? Or will that sow more trouble than it's worth? I think the number one problem, sort of immediate problem 
that uh, American politicians face right now is that a majority of um, Americans seem to be um, regard the, the election as illegitimate. So I, I, I noted this, this um, stat in, in my talk that before the election, about uh, almost 60 percent of Democrats um, thought that if, if Biden didn't elect, didn't win the election, then the election was rigged. So, I mean, that tells me that we might have had riots, whoever won the election, um, which is, you know, bad. <laughs> it's very bad. And again, it's part of this cycle of mimetic rivalry. Um, and now I've forgotten the rest of your question, so I apologize for that. Maybe you could repeat it. Yeah. So do you agree with the impeachment of Donald Trump oh, this yeah. week, or will that sow more trouble than it's worth? Yeah. Um, it, as a principle, I can understand it. And I'm not, I, I think on the whole, I agree with it, but with there, there are many qualifiers. The first is that um, public opinion, the, 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 the stat that I just cited, the, 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 the notion that a lot of people think the election was rigged, um, especially Republican leaders now, they need to convince their supporters that it was not rigged, that the election was legitimate. So as long as you have that many people thinking that the election was rigged, then impeachment, I think, is highly imprudent because it's just going to sow more division. Um, yeah, I, th I think, I, I mean, it's going to go to the Senate when the, when the when the Democrats take over, um, what's interesting is that Mitch McConnell, who will then become the minority leader in the Senate, he's the majority Republican leader now, um, he's been kind of cagey. He said, I don't know how I'd vote. We'll wait for the articles to come to the Senate. Um, so it, it might go ahead. But I, I, if I were to advise the, 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 the senators, I would say delay it. Mm -hmm. Wait for things to settle down, if they do. Mm -hmm. Um, our next question comes from Beth Mundo. Hi, John. If primaries support populist leaders vying for president, what, mach what mechanisms would you suggest to get better candidates? Yeah, how would you rebuild parties so that they be can become better um, uh, kind of filters for that? Uh, <laughs> one of my colleagues and I, for many years, this goes back well before Trump and, and kind of also touching on Canadian politics, we've always had the idea of writing an article titled In Defense of Smoke-Filled Back Rooms hmm. with the suggestion that the kind of party leaders um, who would have actually known the, 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 the uh, by party leaders, I'm not talking about the presidential candidate, I'm talking about sort of the seniors within the party who kind of do the behind the scenes sort of stuff. Um, they are, because they know these these contenders, these, these nominees, probably better than your average um, uh, voter, then they probably deserve a, a bigger say. Um, now, that's controversial. I mean, even the Democrats have their own problem. I mean, Bernie Sanders was notoriously denied, um, you know, winning any kind of candidate uh, because of the, the machinations of the Democratic National uh, Committee. Um, so to, to, to smoke-filled back rooms kind of don't have a lot of legitimacy these days. So I don't have a lot more to offer than that. But I think parties, I mean, one step that they need to take, I think, and this is more of a moral reform rather than a structural reform, 
is that they have to kind of get away from sort of the politics of personality and I think talk more about policy. But of course, this is a political scientist saying this, you know, <laughs> of course, I want more policy talk, less, less, less personality. So I don't have a great answer for you. I'm sorry. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. What do you make of the lack of security on Capitol Hill? In spite of obvious indicators and more direct warnings and Trump, Trump's rally prior to the proceedings, why wasn't security stepped up? Yeah, well, I think they're, they're still trying to figure that out. I mean, my, my, my general go-to answer when it comes to things like this is that never discount uh, administrative incompetence. Um, so the incompetence of, of leaders and, and managers um, within the, the Capitol Police the, and the various um, in, uh, law enforcement agencies, um, I think it's largely incompetence. I think perhaps too, uh, want, perhaps they were worried about maybe a lesson that many law enforcement agencies learned from last summer is that if you present too heavy of uh, a law enforcement um, iron fist, um, then that can actually pr promote more violence. Um, I don't know how much weight to give that one, um, but I, I would go with the incompetence. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Trump actually spoke like a statesman yesterday. Do you think he's starting to worry about his legacy or is he more worried about possibly going to jail in future? And maybe I should add on, or is he worried that the impeachment would then disqualify him from ever running for a state position? Um, uh, a Wall Street uh, Journal editorialist wrote this morning, I thought the, he had the best line, said probably the biggest thing he's worried about, the biggest kind of um, cut to Trump is that uh, he lost the, the, the PGA uh, hosting the PGA tournament, um, <laughs> in which I mean, it's kind of a funny little joke, but that, that, that points to his economics. I mean, his his, his the Trump brand and the Trump empire has, has always been a sort of a shell game and, and a financial mess. And now, you know, all these organizations and banks are, are going to, you know, cut him off. Um, so, I mean, he might be financially ruined. And that that's probably a bigger threat to him than, than mm. his political ambitions. Hmm. Um, Beth Mundo, your thesis on social isolation and loneliness appears to have at its heart loss of responsibility to peers for what one's for what one says or does. Your comments, please. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean just think of, of the difference between, say, a chat room or a Twitter or something like that versus actually sitting down with someone um, in person, it's, it's a very different experience. I mean, with, with Twitter, you can be anonymous, you can sort of so-called throw firebombs or, or flame somebody. And of course, many people's reputations have been destroyed and lives have been destroyed through this and with no consequence. Whereas if, if you have a relationship with someone, you know, it doesn't have to be a, a, a close relationship, but if you kind of see yourselves as part of a, the same kind of social ecosystem, then you recognize that you both have to take responsibility for this. I'll just give you a, 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 an example. One, one of the um, reasons, one of the causes that some people point to that has led to a lot of this hyper-partisanship is back in the 1990s um, when the Republicans um, uh, 
had control of the House of Representatives and Newt Gingrich was the leader of the House. Um, one of the sort of political footballs was that a lot of these members of the House, a lot of these legislatures, they just got sucked into the Washington culture. Um, they got corrupted by spending too much time in Washington. I mean, in, in Canada, the, we've got the equivalent of spending too much time in Ottawa sort of thing. So one of the things that Gingrich did was that um, he required all the House members actually to go home to their districts on the weekends, at least. Um, and, you know, on the surface, that sounds good. You got to be uh, attentive to the needs of your constituents, right? I mean, Jason Kenney just canned one of his um, MLAs uh, on the, on, from the complaints of the constituency association, it seems. But anyway, one of the co bad consequences, though, of that is that the members of the House, the, the, the members of Congress, no longer socialized with one another. So that means that their kids didn't go to the same schools. They didn't you know, there's there, there's a history, actually, of members of Congress actually, you know, after the week of legislating, would get in the car together and drive hours to go back to their constituency. So you have a Democrat and a Republican all packed into a station wagon. Let's drive 16 hours from Washington back to you know Chicago or Columbus or something like that. So there there, there is a kind of parliamentary democracy in all in Canada and and also. The congressional system in the U.S. depends on a kind of social friendship whereby legislators see themselves not just as buddy buddies with, with each other, but also as being responsible also to the very institution that they serve, which is Congress or Parliament in Canada. And so without that social friendship, uh, it's much harder to make a deal. It's much harder to negotiate you're much more incentivized to treat the other side as an enemy to be destroyed or, you know, say outrageous things about them and say, ha, ah, I got away with it. Our next question comes from Frank Horcher. Thanks, John. Is there a center-right explanation of the storm of, of the Capitol, which is significantly different from the mainstream left-wing explanation? If so, what makes it different? I'm sorry, I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah, so I'll read it again. Um, okay. Thanks, John. Is there a center-right explanation of the storm of the capital, which is significantly different, different from the mainstream left-wing explanation? Okay. And if yeah. so, and if so, what is that difference? Yeah. Well, I mean, it just come from what I've been able to glean from the from the the media. Um, the left treats the storming of the Capitol as, as a bunch of racists, which it might have been, I don't know. Um, and they, can, they sometimes offer kind of a sociological explanation that these are kind of disenfranchised. These are whites who, who have lost status. The economy has, they've, they've lost jobs. Um, so now they're angry and they kind of want to retain their, their, their previously privileged place in society. Um, you know, as with all explanations, there's an element of truth, but they, they all tend to be a little bit simplistic. Um, the right is, is more, um, I mean, I think that the right is, co many in the right are coalescing. Um, if they're criticizing it, they're saying, you know, Trump whipped them up. Uh, these are a bunch of crazies. Um, Trump needs to be stopped. But of course, the problem in the right right now is that many actually uh, excuse Trump. 
and 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 say, well, you know, he didn't actually tell them to go riot and tell them to go uh, attack Capitol Hill. I mean, I don't put a lot of stock into that because um, you can whip people up and get them angry without actually actually literally saying, you know, go attack. Okay, our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. Is the extensive different state electoral rules and disenfranchisements of certain population segments leading to disbelief in electoral outcomes? Yeah, well, that's that's part of the cycle of mimetic robbery. I mean, um, um, uh, the, the the New York uh, member of Congress, um, Ortega. Uh, Cortez, no, Ocasio Cortez. Sorry, um, I mean, she's kind of was was playing the, the the democratic narrative of disenfranchisement and uh, also um, sort of gerrymandering and, and so forth. Um, she's commenting on the Georgia uh, Senate uh, kind of runoff election, um, and and so that that's been part of the the left narrative for many years. Um, and, you know, as with all narratives, there's an element of truth. But, of course, you know, bipartisan commissions have to draw up uh, gerrymandering. They both have to do it. So if, if you're a Democrat who complains about Republicans gerrymandering, then, well, where were your people? Right. It's like Trump. Trump says, well, the election was stolen. Well, where were your lawyers back in the summer or earlier uh, to check out the all the mail and stuff? Right. You only bring this up now. At least, in, you know, your legal, your lawyers only bring it up now. Trump's been sort of doing doing it rhetorically for, for a long time. So it's, it's all kind of political theater, in my opinion. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Is Trump a national security risk with respect to his relationships with Putin and others? I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay, our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Please talk about the uniqueness of what can be called a family occupying the presidency. Oh, like um, Trump's, like with Ivanka Trump. and Yeah, well, it's not unique, right? I mean, the Republicans complained back in the 90s about Hillary Clinton. Right. And of course, we've got the Bush dynasty. So Bush 41, Bush 42. And of course, Jeb Bush was one of um, Trump's competitors in the 2016 primaries. So there's lots. I mean, politics is a family business for many of the American American elite. Um, so, I mean, I think what's maybe a little bit different with, with Trump is, is that, um, I mean, it's not less so Ivanka, more so Jared, her husband actually played a very key role in a, in a lot of the um, foreign policy, uh, not just foreign policy, but he was very he was a very close a, a advisor. So, for instance, uh, early on, um, the, the Trudeau government understood very early on that the way to get to Trump is actually through Jared Kushner. So Gerald Butts, who was the, 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 the um, assistant to and friend to Justin Trudeau before he, let, he had to go, um, he, he actually had to develop a, a friendship with Jared Kushner. Uh, in order to help, you know, Canada sort of mostly with the free, free trade stuff. Yeah. Okay, our next question comes from uh, Bev Mundo. John, you mentioned at the end of your talk something else you wish to follow up on in the Q&A. Oh, 
Oh, yeah. So I, I came up with a few notes. Just, I mean, I, I've, I've, what I've tried to do in my talk is, is offer kind of a diagnosis um, of, of kind of what, how this happened and kind of provide kind of the larger, larger context. Um, but I did come up with a few notes of sort of, okay, where, where do they go from here? You know, what's to be done? And so that, that came up uh, in, in once or twice in the Q&A with, with the impeachment. So um, just to sort of get everybody up on, on, up, up on board, um, Nancy Pelosi in the House and, the, 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 and with the support of, I think, 10, maybe 12 House Republicans have um, passed impeachment articles. So he has been impeached. But the way it works is that to be impeached means it's, it's kind of the equivalent of being prosecuted. So just as within a criminal trial, you get prosecuted, but you still have to go to trial. And so he's only been prosecuted. That's what it means for the House of Representatives to, to, to impeach. They have prosecuted. So those articles of impeachment, which are equivalent to, say, a criminal charges, they're not, it's not a criminal trial, but it's, it's more of a political trial, um, they now get sent to the Senate. Now, because of the transition, uh, currently the, the Republicans run the Senate. Mitch McConnell is the Senate majority leader, and he said, we're about to finish our term. Um, I'm not going to take it on for the rest of our very brief term. So you're going to have to wait until the next session of the Senate. And what makes that interesting is that when the next session of the Senate takes place, um, it's going to be um, run. Hmm. John, are you there? We seems to have lost our speaker. Are you back, John? Oh, there I, you go. I can see you. Okay. I, okay. Oh, can you okay. can you start again? My... Sorry. Yeah. We oh, don't... okay. I don't know how. I don't know when I cut out, but I was just explaining the impeachment process. Yeah. So just quickly, the House of Representatives they act like a prosecutor, and they've passed the, the articles of impeachment. So he has been impeached, but that's just prosecution. The trial is before the Senate, and there's the, the, the new Senate won't convene for another, I guess, after the, the 20th, when the, when the inauguration is. When that happens, um, the Democrats will have control of the Senate because they've got the majority. Charles Schumer will, will, will become the Senate, Senate majority leader. He's the Democrat from New York, and he'll be, I guess, the presiding judge, um, I, I think. However... You need a two-thirds majority to get an indictment. And that's the question, because the, 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 the Democrats don't have a two-thirds majority in, in the Senate. They need Republicans to support the impeachment. Now, so far, I, I know that probably um, Mitt Romney will probably indict, but I don't, have, I don't know if they're going to have enough. And that's the question. That's a question for the next couple of weeks, just to see whether the Republicans... Enough Republican senators will sign on for that. One of the questions that people bandy about: Can you impeach uh, someone who's no longer president? Hmm. Right? Does does the president have to be a sitting president? And from my understanding of the precedents and the case laws and, and so forth, is that, that's actually not a problem. 
that the Senate has conducted trials, not for the president, but for other uh, officials uh, after they've left office. In those cases, it's been kind of a political decision whether or not to, to, to indict them, because once they've left office, it's like, well, what's the point? But of course, there is a very big point when it comes to this, in this particular case. Um, the other thing to look for is to what extent can both Republicans and Democrats, um, in a sense, try to dial down the temperature? Can they dial down this cycle of mimetic rivalry? And it's, it's, it's not clear that that can happen for several reasons. First, Joe Biden, who will come in as president, he's going to want normalcy. He'll be somebody who, you know, partly because of his experience, many years of being the Senate, will want to create as big of a coalition and maybe even reach across aisles and these sorts of things. And it might be even in his interest even to pardon Trump, just to get, just pardon him and get it over with, just move on. Nancy Pelosi, on the other hand, has the opposite interest. Her nickname is Gas Can Nan. <laughs> seen that. But at any rate, it's in her interest to keep the Trump thing going. Why? Because that that brings votes over to Democrats. As long as people, as long as she has the, the Trump boogeyman there, that she sees that as a way of getting people to vote for the Democrats. So even within the Democratic Party, you have on the one side in the presidency, you, you've got an ambition for normalcy. On the other side, in the House of Representatives, you've got a, a self-interest and ambition to kind of keep the keep the flames going. Hmm. So even there, you've got a bit of a problem. Um, one other thing I just point out is pay attention to whom Biden appoints and sorry nominates as his attorney general. And here's why it's important, because the attorney general is a very politicized position, but it, the attorney general is also the top lawyer in the United States. Uh, the current one under Trump, um, I don't think he resigned yet, is uh, William Barr. So he's kind of a controversial figure. But the reason why the person who runs the Department of Justice is an important figure is because there's to be a lawyer, you got to abide by the laws. But at the same time, you're kind of torn because your boss, the president, wants you to do stuff that might conflict with your job as a lawyer. And where, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how the Trump's presidency has kind of corroded norms and, you know, undermined public morality and, but, you know, undermined the legal order. The Department of Justice is a key place to look. And the, the early sign is actually fairly encouraging. Biden has nominated as his attorney general uh, Merrick Garland as uh, his attorney general. Uh, you might recall that Merrick Garland was the, the, the gentleman that Barack Obama, late in his term, nominated for uh, Antonin Scalia's um, Supreme Court seat. At that time, the Republican Senate says, nah, we're not going to listen to it. Too bad. So sad. And of course, they later filled Scalia's seat with uh, Neil Gorsuch. So um, Mayor Garland, of course, is, is a judge, in, I think, in the, in, the federal dist in the Federal Court of Appeals, which is sort of right one under the Supreme Court. But he's pr pretty well respected as a process guy and a very serious legal scholar of le legal integrity. 
Um, the precedent I have in mind is actually, if you think of, some of you may be old enough to remember Watergate with Richard Nixon. And Watergate, um, when Gerald Ford took over as president after Watergate, he um, appointed somebody kind of like Garland, um, Levy, I think his name was David Levy. He, he was the president of the University of Chicago and dean of the law school. But he was somebody who was very instrumental at reestablishing those legal norms um, that kind of ensured the, the integrity of the constitutional order. Uh, Jimmy Carter himself um, nominated or had as his attorney general a fellow by the name of Griffin Bell, um, who was, is well regarded for doing that as well. So I think what's really important for the Biden presidency, there's lots of things that are important, but that's one of the key ones, making sure that your attorney general, um, with the cooperation, of course, of the president, is able to reestablish the, the culture within the de Department of Justice um, so that the, 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 the Department of Justice uh, is no longer, in fact, or in appearance, um, the political tool of the president. And of course, that was always the challenge for the for William Barr, and a lot of he took a lot of flack for being kind of being too political. So that that that's a key place. Okay, um, I know that we're um, at uh, eight minutes over time now, but we have one more question from Timothy at the Herald. Are you okay time wise to take that question, Joe? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, I hear Lindsey Graham used the threat of the impeachment vote to get Trump to commit to a peaceful transition of power. Republicans seem to be using that as a hammer holding over Trump's head until after Biden's inauguration. Yeah, yeah well, that's, that's an interesting observation and a little surprising from coming from Lindsey Graham. Um, so, I mean, I, I would say that you know, you could say, well, maybe they finally come to their senses and, and you know, want to do something decent. Uh, I, I think probably a better um, explanation for Lindsey Graham is sort of checks and balances of, of the Madisonian Constitution that as a, as a se senator, um, he's got certain interests and um, certain ambitions that coincide with the protection of the U.S. Constitution and also... Uh, how the Senate checks the power of the presidency. Um, you, you know, right now, all these Republican politicians are worried about the, the people who voted for them. Um, so there's that, too. Excellent. Thank you very much, John. Um, Claude You're welcome. Claude Peterson, very interesting talk. Thank you. Beth Mundell, thanks, John. Well done. Um, Seth Barsoli, thanks, you on, you know, and especially for the late call that we had in for you to do this. Um, before we end the live stream, do you have a take home message for us? Yes, stay off social media mm. and go read um, two books. Uh, the Federalist Papers, which James Madison is a contributing writer, and also uh, Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. They're, they're both big books, so they'll, they'll keep you away from social media for a while, which is healthy. Excellent. Um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We hope to see you next week where we have Dr. Laurie Atkin, uh, who will be presenting on fossil fuel industry and research in Alberta. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining in, and we'll see you next week.